as you get settled, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. The message this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. I'll read beginning there through verse 56. The Word of God reads, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humblest humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now we spent the last few weeks considering how the the fire of our spiritual walks is reignited. And we've moved from asking ourselves if the, the root of our motivation as Christians is truly Christian love. We've moved from there to asking if we're willing to actually obey God when he speaks to us. And just last week, we explored whether we believe in God's ability at all. So this morning, we introduce another soul-searching question by sharing with you this image. Do you know what that image is? It's Julie Andrews in the classic film, Sound of Music. And she is standing along a beautiful mountainside with her arms stretched out, twirling around as she sings, The hills are alive with the sound of music. She's playing the part of a woman who is so full of joy and so full of happiness that she cannot restrain the music that is in her heart. Today we're going to look at two other women whose hearts are so full that they can do nothing. They can do nothing but help but sing. Now, as I've mentioned previously, Luke is fascinated with the, the way the birth the the, the way the birth of John the Baptist is interwoven with the birth of Jesus Christ. And in the passage we're examining today, we're, we're, we see the two mothers coming together for a visit. Now, we remember last week that, uh, that we heard the angel Gabriel tell young Mary that her relative, Elizabeth, was expecting a child. 
These words, they were a surprise to Mary because Elizabeth, well, she was old. And she was thought to not be able to bear children at all. And we pick up with the story beginning in verse 39, first taking notice of Elizabeth's admiration. Elizabeth's admiration. Now, by studying the statements about time, we can infer that Mary left almost immediately after Gabriel's visit. Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy when Gabriel visited Mary. Verse 56 tells us that Mary stayed for three months. We notice the scripture says that Mary got ready and hurried. There were probably several good reasons why Mary chose to visit Elizabeth. She was there to maybe check out Gabriel's statement. But as we'll see later, she was probably also anxious to get away from Nazareth. We can safely assume this was a surprise visit. Well, how can that be true? Verse 40 tells us that Mary was the one to greet Elizabeth in the first place. This defied social customs of the day that would have led Elizabeth to wait outside the home to greet Mary as her guest, if Elizabeth even knew that Mary was coming in the first place. And Mary surprised Elizabeth because it says that she entered the house before she greeted her. Oh, here's the thing. Most women don't like to have unannounced company, but in this case, Elizabeth, she's overjoyed. Elizabeth responds to Mary's visit with a spontaneous song of admiration. I deeply admire Elizabeth, and in many ways, each of us should imitate her faith and practice. And I want to look just briefly at four ways that we can learn in our walks from Elizabeth as testified to here in these scriptures. Like Elizabeth, we should first be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke has more to say about the Holy Spirit than all the other gospel writers. He's also penned the book of Acts, which can also be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And Gabriel had told Zechariah that their son would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. How's that possible? It's because his mother was filled with the Holy Spirit. And moms and dads, your spiritual condition will go a long way to determine the spiritual depth of your children. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we're commanded, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, you may be unaware, but when you're saved, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But that's not the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. When a Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit, that person is under the control of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul compares and contrasts it as being drunk with wine. When a person is drunk, they're under the influence of that toxin, and that's bad. When a Christian is filled with the Spirit, they're under the influence of God's Spirit, and that's good. Being drunk affects the way a person thinks, the way a person acts, the way a person walks, the way a person talks. When you're filled with the Spirit, it too affects the way you think and act and speak and walk. The words that Elizabeth speaks, they're not her own. She's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as a Christian, it is our job to be filled and to stay filled with God's Holy Spirit. It's not some, some freaky experience that makes you act weird. In fact, it is an act of continual surrender that makes you act normal. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it produces a, a certain attitude and actions. 
We see them in Elizabeth. And we see that she responds to this with joy and enthusiasm. And there's two indications that let us know that Elizabeth was ecstatic. First, in verse 44, she shares that her unborn baby was leaping for joy in the womb. That had to cause her to, to come about to great joy as well. I can remember when, when Yvette and I were pregnant and we could feel the girls moving in her tummy. It's, it's hard to describe the joy and the thrill that both of us would feel to know that there was a little person in there moving around. When, when uh, we, we were pregnant with Bethany, in fact, every time we played El Rey by Vicente Fernandez, it, she would make us wonder, Bethany, if she could ever become a Baptist with the way she responded in her mama's belly. She was all over the place in there. Well, this first Baptist baby, he was jumping for joy. What a jolt of joy Elizabeth must have experienced when she heard Mary's voice and felt her unborn son leaping for joy. Verse 42 says that Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud voice. She was full of joy and excitement. And according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, joy is the second fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy shouldn't be something that you have to dredge up from your gloomy spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, He's going to produce the beautiful fruit of joy in your personality. One way to spot a person who's not filled with the Holy Spirit is when there's no joy in their life. I think joy and enthusiasm are Siamese twins. Joy is what you experience personally. Enthusiasm is how to express that joy to others. Our English word enthusiasm is comprised of two Greek words, en, which means in, and theos, which means God. In other words, the more that you are in God, the more enthusiastic you're going to be. I think joy is the birthright of every true follower of Christ. It's part of our, our spiritual heritage. You see, the evil one, he's a thief and he is a liar, and he knows that he cannot rob you of your salvation. So what he goes about doing is trying to steal your joy from you, the joy of your salvation. That's why David prays in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Friend, this morning, have you lost the joy of your salvation? You know what you need to do. The third thing we see from Elizabeth is her spiritual insight. When a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, not only will there be joy, but there will also be the revelation of spiritual truth. Now, Jesus promised that when he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, that he would guide us in all truth. Elizabeth makes some amazing observations that would not have been possible if she had not been filled with the Holy Spirit. First, she knows by divine revelation that Mary is going to have a child. And she acknowledges this before Mary can even tell her about this business of a visit from an angel named Gabriel. And second, she recognizes that Mary's child would not be just any other child. Verse 43, she asks, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That was part of a mother's instinct to be protective and proud of her own children. And you would have thought that maybe Elizabeth would have just recited all the great things that Gabriel had predicted of her own son, John the, John the Baptist. But she's not jealous at all. 
Most of, our parents, most of us parents prefer to brag about how great our children are, but not Elizabeth. The filling of the Holy Spirit also produces true humility. Notice what Elizabeth says about Mary's unborn child. She calls him, my Lord. And as far as we know, Elizabeth is the only person to confess, Jesus is my Lord, while he's still yet to be born. What an incredible spiritual insight she must have had to be able to recognize that this little boy would be her Lord and the Lord of everyone else. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and Elizabeth proclaimed it first, but she ain't the last. We notice one more thing about Elizabeth and that is encouragement. We notice the final inspired thing that she says in verse 45. She calls her blessed because she was believing the Lord. Now remember, Mary is an unmarried teenager facing a pregnancy out of wedlock. She had to be confused. She had to be scared. She had to be a little uncertain about what all was happening. Yet what an encouragement it must have been to hear Elizabeth greet her by confirming what what Gabriel had told her. Elizabeth is saying, Mary, you're so blessed. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that the, one of the reasons we're to gather together for worship is to encourage one another. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit like Elizabeth is, you won't be focusing on getting a blessing. You won't. You'll be focused primarily on being a blessing for others. Like the old song, Home, Home on the Range, church should be a place where seldom is heard a discouraging word. But the sad thing is that for many people, they leave church saying where seldom is heard an encouraging word. Our job as Christians is to encourage others, to make sure they leave church being built up in the faith. Now, we are commanded to be filled with the same Holy Spirit who filled Elizabeth 2,000 years ago. How can you tell when you're filled? When you're expressing joy and enthusiasm. You'll have an, uh, an unusual spiritual insight into God's truth, and you'll be a supernatural encouragement to others. Now, I want us to shift gears and to look look at Mary's song of response that starts in verse 46, and this runs through verse 56. And I do so first calling to attention that this part of what I'm about to preach may not be something you've heard preached in this way before. I looked at many a, a sermon studying how people preach this, and I find that a lot of times we get focused on the devotional aspects of Mary. We, we get so captivated by a young teenage girl who can, as she's inspired of the spirits, utter these words. But rather, I would focus us, just like in the, what we sing every Sunday morning when we gather, on the substance of what she sings, and more specifically, the person to whom she sings. How do we know this is a song? We do so because in the Greek text, it's arranged into lyrics like the Psalms of the Old Testament. This song has been called the, Man- the Magnificat because in the Latin translation, of the f- it's the Latin translation of the first word in the song. Again, I don't want us to get caught up 
in the devotion aspect, what I want us to focus on is that this is a song of God's mercy. She's a recipient of God's mercy. We'd be right to say that if Mary is expressing adoration to God, it's because she has received God's mercy. If grace is a concern for men as guilty, then mercy is concern for men as being miserable. In fact, we, we would combine the two and say that God's mercy is his love towards those who are in misery as a result of their sin and their guilt. So I want us to first notice in this song, God's mercy to Mary. This is what she's singing of. First, we've got to notice that she needed mercy in the first place. That's the first obvious thing to notice. Why did Mary stand in need of mercy? Because she was a sinner like everyone else but Jesus. That's why she rejoices in verse 47, in God who is the Savior. She's glorifying God and rejoicing in his person, and Mary is extolling this child to be as Savior. So we don't miss the point here. Mary will be following along as we continue on in Luke, along the entire life's path of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. She's to be witness to all his miraculous works until she is led eventually to the place beneath the cross where she looks up upon her son, her son who is the Christ. And she recognizes that there on that cross, he bears her sin in his own body on that tree. God's mercy to her was a necessary mercy. It was a mercy, as we notice, that extended to her humble estate. God could have come and found a rich and noble and powerful queen, but instead he came and chose this poor, despised, lowly virgin girl. And, says Mary, his mercy toward me is not going to be forgotten with the passing of generations. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Our time together this morning is a fulfillment of her word. We're here looking at the very text that she gave by the inspiration in this moment in time. And we notice Mary's focus in verse 49. It doesn't say the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is my name. No, it says the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. When you read the Bible, you always find Mary looking away to the Christ. What are the great things that he's done? Well, the Lord has sent Gabriel. He had, he had chosen Mary. He had caused her conception. He's revealed the mystery as, as to her cousin Elizabeth and enabled her to speak as she had done. And she had shown her her own need for a Savior. So in this, God's mercy is made plain to Mary. And when we get to verse 50, we realize that God's mercy extends to those who fear him. Those who fear him from generation to generation. What then is this fear that the Bible speaks of? How would we know that there is this fear of God which is an awareness of his mercy? Well, we would be right to know that when the Bible uses the word fear, it does so in different ways. But the fear that, is, that Mary is speaking of is that kind of fear which is only revealed when we are in awe of the divine. It fills the hearts of those who recognize God's majesty and his might and his holiness. 
It's the kind of reverence that bows before his power and his righteousness, which deters individuals from treating God and his commandments lightly, just trying to set them aside by their disobedience. And I'd ask that you hear me clearly this morning. You cannot fear God in the way that Mary is exampling to us and then lift it, live in direct violation to his plain statements in the Bible. You can't do that. If you think you can, you're at least a walking contradiction, if not a flat-out liar. Because the mercy of God extends to those who understand his love, who understand his grace, who understand God's goodness. And it moves them to honor him and to obey his commands in childlike reverence. Now, he's performed for these individuals mighty deeds with his arm. Well, God doesn't have an arm. God's invisible. What does that even mean? He's done mighty things with his arm. Well, when the Bible speaks in this way, it's always a picture of God's intervention. For example, when we read in Exodus chapter 6, God has come to his servant Moses and has given him the courage to go and to say, Let my people go. And that courage is undergirded with the statement from God to Moses, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And in his revealing his plan of redemption, he's revealed as both a mighty warrior and a merciful savior. As you're reading your Bible this year, I'd suggest that you keep a journal that, that, and reserve two adjacent pages. Give one the title of Mighty Warrior and the other the title of, of Merciful Savior. And as you read the Bible, make, make a quick note of how God manis, manifests himself at, 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 uh, as one or the other. And by the end of the year, what, you'll be able to bring those two pages together and you'll find that they, pit, they fit perfectly together. Because at the same time, God in this tension is mighty warrior and merciful savior. And I want to spend the next few minutes speaking to the might of God. Because here's the thing, in 2023, I think Christians across this country do not have an appreciation for the mightiness of our God. We're at risk of losing sense of just how mighty he is. Now, God's might is established and what are these mighty deeds that he's performed with his arm? Well, in verse 51, we, we read, He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The mercy of God extends to those who understand his love and his grace and his goodness, and it moves them to honor him, like I said. Yet there are those who don't fear him in this manner. Or as the Bible would say in Psalm 14, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Well, how many go around in their pride demanding that God explain himself as if God owes any of us an explanation? Oh, rather, we know this from the word of God, that God scatters the proud and the arrogant. I need you to know God is not made small by the person who questions him. To anyone who would be proud in the, in the thoughts of their hearts, God says, just as we read in Genesis chapter 3, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. God takes account of all the imitators who are, attack, who are attacking the Bible and who are attacking the church by calling what we know to be true into question. And just like the second psalm tells us, God surveys it all 
and he laughs. As a mighty warrior, God scatters away the proud. He also brings down rulers. You read in the book of Daniel, we see King, uh, we see King Nebuchadnezzar standing on the edge of his, uh, on the roof of his great palace in Babylon. The same way maybe some of us are tempted to do with our, our petty empires that we think that we've built. Whether they're financial empires or whether they're social empires or whether they're even church empires. And we're tempted to stand up and to say to ourselves, is this not great, this thing that I have built? Huh. In a blink of an eye, the servants of that palace are out looking at the pasture beyond and they're saying, hey, who is that out there? Who let the cattle loose in that field? Well, that's not a cow, that's but a man. A man, he's around there crawling and eating grass and mooing like a cow. Who is that? Oh, and you read in Daniel, those servants, they recognize, that's the king. That's Nebuchadnezzar down there. And you, they ask, well, what's he doing down there? He's usually up here saying, here I am, Nebuchadnezzar. I am great. Look at all that I've done. Yet the Lord's made him to moo like a cow and eat the grass of the field. How does that happen? God not only scatters the proud, but he brings down the rulers. And he sends away the rich empty. He doesn't have to take the riches away from them to send them away empty, though. He just allows them to get richer and richer and richer. And the richer they become, the more they understand just how empty they are. And the interesting thing with having stuff or having money is that at some point, you know deep within that there's no amount that satisfies the soul or gives significance to life in any way. Some of you are here, frankly, and this is your life laid right before you. I mean, you've been coming, and I don't want to be ugly or unkind, but you're fairly proud of what you've done. You're saying to yourself, you know, I studied hard, and I did well, and I did this, and I did that, and I did the next thing. And I mean, I send my resume out, and everybody looks upon it with great intrigue, and they're impressed with all that I've built about myself. I have a reputation in my, in my uh, arena, my industry, as being the best in class. And you know what? I am. I no longer have five acres in the countryside. I've got 50, maybe 500. In fact, I spent yesterday calculating my estate. And I, I tell you, I can't even believe where I am. You know what I think I'll do? I think I'm going to stop by First Baptist Church in Divine. There's people there. I don't know what they're into, but I'd like to add a little, you know, I'd like to add a little Jesus into this thing, a little spirituality, if you will. Because I've got everything else taken care of in my life now. And you know, I'm basically in the greatest position of power that I could ever imagine. I have all the possessions and wealth in the world, and frankly, I'm pretty proud of it. Here's a word of warning to you, if that's you. Jesus Christ will not accommodate you. No, the Lord will not accommodate you. He scatters the proud, he brings down the rulers, and he sends away the rich people empty. <laughs> what in the world are we supposed to do then? If God then is a mighty warrior, is he then unkind, maybe we ask? No, he's not. He's absolutely merciful. 
in God's mercy, he's brought you to a circumstance, to a place just like this. When you're thinking you're going to just sprinkle a little Jesus on all your success. Where you're confident all your life is good. And you now have managed to maybe just find some time to tack on this guy called Jesus to your life. And in God's mercy, he brings you here to say, you're going to have to fall down on your face. And you're going to have to acknowledge that I am God. And there is no other. That everything you have and everything you are is owed to me. And if you would be humble enough to do that, and if you would be hungry enough to seek me, says the Lord, then I'm going to lift you up in humility. And I will feed, feed you in hunger. But you see... Proud, ruling, rich people. They're not by nature humble and they have no sense of hunger. That's why it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the whole purpose of that individual's life is to believe that by self-endeavor, by self-generation, he or she has put themselves in a position whereby there's no club that they cannot attend, no seat that they cannot get, no ticket they cannot buy. And by golly, at the end of time, they will have their place in heaven too. That's their thought. And God just sits back and laughs in the heavens. That's why when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to... To worldly standards, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. We ask, why not? Because those are the very things that present an individual, that prevent an individual from admitting their hunger, from admitting their spiritual poverty, from admitting their need for God. Now, the flip side of this mighty warrior aspect of God, is that he's wonderful too. He's merciful. He lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry. Speaking of humble and hungry, I came across a poem by a woman who's named as Christina Rossetti. She lived a while ago. Christina was the daughter of Italian immigrants, a woman who, as you read of her, was to be found of great beauty. A woman of immense poetic talent, a devout Christian once engaged to a Roman Catholic who promised to convert. But then he had second thoughts and she broke the engagement and remained single all her life. And through that life, she wrote some of the most beautiful and magnificent poetry. All of it is a tribute to Christ. She wrote this poem about the birth of Christ and every time I read her words, I moved. She writes, In the bleak midwinter, a stable place suffered for the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim fill the air. But his mother, only in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. Her poem that I'm sharing from concludes with these beautiful words. What can I give him? Poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I'd give him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'd do my part. But what can I give him? 
I'll give him my heart. You're in the presence of God. Is your heart full? Do you understand your desperate need of God's mercy? Remember that scene from The Sound of Music? There's a, I know, a silence in this room right now. But we ought to leave here this afternoon singing. Our hearts are alive with the joy of worship. The joy of worship of a merciful God who would send his son to die for you and I, to be raised on the third day so that you and I might truly live. Let's pray. God, you are great and merciful beyond compare and imagination. And Lord, we come and we thank you today. We magnify you as this young virgin Mary did two millennia ago. Father, may our hearts be filled with joy and enthusiasm as we've come to understand who you are as mighty warrior and who you are as merciful God. May we never lose sense of the completeness and fullness of who you are. May we never take your grace for granted. Lord, in our feeble minds, may we come to appreciate in greater depths the magnitude of what it means God to come and take on flesh. For God in the second person of the Trinity to die, to atone for sin. God to be raised to life once more and to empty the grave of its power. Lord, may this truth be buried deep within our hearts as we leave this place committed to Christ and none other. This I pray in his name. Amen. Church, won't you stand? Won't we sing together the hymn that Brother Scott will lead us in? As he does, I invite you